This is part three of Coming to Christ. is a series we started talking about, kind of related to preaching the gospel and evangelism in general. The first week we talked about some pitfalls of, of how not to preach the gospel and some things that you, you should say and shouldn't say, things that have to do with, with man and humanism. Of course, we want to keep out. We want to, man wants to stand out of the way and we, we preach not ourselves, but we preach Christ. And uh, we talked about certain issues of compromise. If we love our friends, family, co-workers, we don't want to compromise this message. If we think that we are inviting more people or making the message more palatable for people by trimming down the rough edges, we are not opening the door, but we are shutting the door. The second message, we talked about who God is and what he requires from human beings. And in a, in a nutshell, he requires absolute perfection. He requires you to be just like his son. So tonight we're going to talk about how that we are not like his son. How to fail in every aspect of what God requires. Which is just going to keep pointing us to Christ as the only remedy. And that will be, be our third and final message on that. Uh, and then we'll move on to another, another issue. Even though we always talk about this idea here of uh, preaching the gospel and evangelism coming to Christ. So today we want to talk about the human condition. How bad is it? How bad is the human condition? Man is void of the righteousness that God demands. We said that in the second message that God demands absolute perfection. He demands that we be just like Jesus Christ, not any less than him. Christ is the standard, so we have to be as righteous as him to be accepted to God because that is God's standard. Now we know, we know, but we're going to rehearse why and how man got in this condition. We know that because man was born in the state of condemnation, we're going to break these phrases down. I'm making some statements here. We're going to break them down and explain what they mean. I just don't want to spit out a bunch of language here. Mankind is born in the state of condemnation. What does that mean? God decided, purposed, that when he created Adam, that Adam would be the representative, the one representative of the whole human race. And whatever Adam did would be applied to the whole human race. God gave all kinds of things to Adam, and he gave him one command, to don't eat of this one particular fruit of this tree. Of course, we know the story. He did. But before that, God said, when you eat of it, the day you eat of it, you are going to die. You shall surely die. And we know the lie of Satan, how Satan tempted Eve and said, you shall not surely die. And questioned God's authority, God's truth, God's faithfulness to his threat and so on. So Eve was deceived. Eve took of the fruit. Adam willingly joined in Eve's rebellion, took of the fruit sinned against God, broke the only law that God laid out. And because of that, Adam represented the whole human race, and that sin was transferred to the whole human race, which not only that legal state of condemnation was spread, but there was a sinful state of corruption that spread. In other words, we were born after Adam with a sin nature. Uh, we were bent at the root, and all we think of is anti-thoughts of God. We think of self, we are self-righteous, 
We're self-serving. We're proud. We're rebellious. We cannot submit ourselves to the law of God. There are just so many inabilities that by nature we have. We're in trouble. <laughs> we need a Savior. And I want to go into detail about a lot of those inabilities so that we can maybe remember some of these. And, and when we deal with people and we're preaching the bad news to people first, it will put them in a trap and they'll say, okay, I give up. What's, uh, what can I do to be saved? That's where we want to get them. And we know the Spirit of God really has to get them there. But the message that we present is the means to get them in that position. Our goal was to show them their unrighteousness. So we're born in a state of condemnation, born with a sin nature, and we are automatically void of a perfect righteousness. We do not have the righteousness that the only true God requires us to have. And we had already studied that a perfect holy God can demand no less than perfection because he's faithful to his own character. He has to demand perfection because that's what he is. And man is not only far from it, but he doesn't even come close. Doesn't come close. There's no hope in and of himself. There's not like, okay, let's see. Let's, let's, all of us humans, let's get our heads together. There's got to be some way we can do this. There's got to be a way that we can typically build a tower of Babel to reach heaven to please God. There's got to be some way. Not even close. Not if we, if we combine all of our efforts and you take the best of every person's efforts and add them up all together, don't even come close. It's not going to work. Now in Romans, Romans chapter 3, I think we're all familiar with very famous text here that talks about the total depravity of mankind. I'm reading from the modern King James Version. It says in verse 10, Romans 3.10, as it is written, and where is it written? Psalm 14. That's where it's written. This is a quote. Some of these next three or four verses are quotes from Psalm 14. As it is written, there is none righteous, no, not one. This righteousness that the Lord God Almighty requires, Paul says here concerning mankind, as he comes into the world by nature automatically, there are none of them who are righteous. No, not one. Pretty redundant about it. He goes on and he adds another layer. There is none that understands. Now, as we are preaching the gospel to people, we know just recently we went through John 17. John 17, 3 says, and this is life eternal, that they know you, God, the only true God in Jesus Christ whom thou hast sent. Salvation inv involves knowing God. And to know God, you must understand who God is. Knowing and understanding, you can't separate those things. They go hand in hand. So to know and understand God, there has to be something from the outside of you, a supernatural source and force to cause you to understand God and to know God. And here it says by nature, we don't have that. We don't understand. As a result of not understanding, what do we do? We go about to do things that are actually contrary to God's only way of salvation. It's our nature to formulate our own ideas of salvation. 
even formulate our own concepts of who God is in our own imagination. So we don't think right by nature. Since Adam fell, man's mind has been, we could say, spiritually retarded. It's really worse than that. Spiritually dead is even worse. Something that's spiritually retarded at least has something left of it, but spiritually dead has nothing. It's done. So as a result of deadness, this deadness that man has, he just doesn't stay neutral. He runs contrary to God's word. He's God's enemy. He's not just lying in a casket as a corpse, unresponsive. He's responding in a bad way. He's attacking God's glory. So this is the state of man. Man is God's enemy. It says in verse, well, the latter part of verse 11, there is none that seeks after God. You know, that, that's contrary to, you talk to anybody, and they talk about the free will of man that makes him seek after God. Paul says there ain't none of it right here. It's gone. There's none of it. Nobody seeks after God. First of all, they don't know him. If they don't understand, how are they going to seek after God if they don't understand and they don't know who God is? Besides that, they don't have the ability to move toward God. How do you move toward God? Faith. Where's faith come from? It doesn't come from within. We know the scripture says that faith is a gift of God. It's a supernatural gift of God after you have been given spiritual life. Regeneration re results in automatic faith given. That's the first thing that causes us to see God. So man doesn't naturally have faith stored in his survival pack. You know, he doesn't have that stuff within him. It has to be given to him. And not everybody gets it. God doesn't give it to everybody because God is sovereign and he gives it to those that he chose, those that Christ died for and those that the Spirit convicts. So there's none righteous, there's none good, and there's none that understands, and there's none that seeks after God. Verse 12 says that they have all gone out of the way, and they have together become unprofitable. There is none good, no, not one. Now this is kind of what I was saying a little bit earlier. Add them all up together. The best of the best and they're still unprofitable. I mean, individuals who are blind to these truths that we're talking about here, they are asked about themselves in reference to God. And they see themselves as good. They see themselves as having an ability to come to God. They see themselves as somewhat righteous. And they, they see themselves as uh, having an understanding. They blow it on all four of these things. And when they do that, what are they doing? What are they implying? They're implying that God is a liar because this is what God says man is by nature. So this is the state of man as he comes into the world. He is void of the righteousness that God demands. It says in Isaiah, you don't have to turn there. These are very familiar verses to you. Isaiah 64, 6, all our righteousness are as filthy rags. In other words, the best deeds that you have ever done to please God in all your sincerity, the very best is 
as filthy rags, which we know the original language talks about that's menstrual rags. Paul the Apostle said basically the same thing in Philippians 3.8. He said he counted his own righteousness as dung. That's waste that you flush down the toilet. So that's what man's righteousness looks like. Menstrual rags and dung. Not something to boast about. We quoted this, I think, uh, last week, maybe the week before, that in Psalm 39.5, truly, every man at his best is altogether vanity. Now, of course, I, I believe that's talking about his righteousness, basically. Um, because what kid man offered to God but righteousness? I mean, that's what God requires. So man at his best, in reference to producing a righteousness, the best that he can do is filthy rags, dung, and vanity. This is the continual testimony of God himself about man's state. If you would, and I keep wanting to go back to this idea of compounding mankind altogether, if you would get the best of all mankind and pile up all men's righteousness and say, well, can't we collectively at least somehow get somebody in collectively? He says they're all together vanity. So if you take men out separate, stand before the throne of God separately with your little Weasley efforts at righteousness, it's less than nothing. You know, he says that about man in another spot in... Um, in Psalms, talks about the man as something about on the scales of balance, it's like dust and says something about less than nothing. I think if you take each person at their individual and look at their righteousness, they're less than, they're even less than a waste, if that can even be spoken of. They're, it's, they're in trouble. They're bad off. That's what we're saying. Uh, almost, I never like to say words can't express because I think God gave us words to express things, but it's almost at that point where it's like we are we are so far removed as sinners, we can't even hardly talk about it right and express the distance between us and God. It's a ridiculous distance. Now we know Romans 3.23 says, For all have sinned. This is the same chapter we just read from. We are in Romans 3 here. For all have sinned, all these people that by nature come into the world that are not righteous, that are not good, that don't understand, that don't seek after God. All these people have sinned and come short of the glory of God. And we know that the glory of God is Jesus Christ. Yes? I know it seems obvious. We're not talking about feelings. We're not talking about how we feel. Because if that were true, I mean, I, I still, I mean, even about feeling myself, righteous, huh? about feeling righteous. Yeah, and myself, I still don't. I, I know the scripture says it's true, but I never, I never hated Christ. But the scripture says I did. Yeah. Now, how do I reconcile it too? I never knew. I never, I never felt. I mean, I, I sort of felt like there was a, there was something between us, but. I didn't sure I didn't hate him, but he said, "No, I hate him. I hated God." Now that's 
I think if we can understand and reconcile the difference between us, the idea of how how men's hearts are by nature. Oh yeah, that's it's down in here. I'll get to it. Yeah. And, I'm just saying. Yeah. And when I get to it, I'll point you out there and say, "Here we are." <laughs> yeah, that's coming up. There's a verse that we're also familiar with that says, and it's in John 1.10, If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar and the truth is not in us. 1 John 1.10 Now, we know that God, there's another verse in Titus that says, concerning the, lot, the, the God that cannot lie, promised eternal life before the world began. So we know that God cannot lie. We know Christ is the truth. So God cannot lie. If we say we have not sinned, we are implying that God's a liar. Well, we know God's not a liar. So what's it makes us a liar? In other words, all men let men let all men be liars and God be true. So we know that one sin is enough to condemn us. And that was already taken care of in Adam. We're already condemned in Adam. Then we come out of the womb speaking lies, as David said, because of that sin nature. So we are we are liars concerning all these things we're talking about, let alone all the other things we lie about. We, we lie about this stuff naturally until God straightens us out on it. We also are familiar with a, a verse in Romans 6, 3 that says, The wages of sin is death. Now, remember God said, The day you eat thereof, you shall surely die. We spoke of how that Adam, he didn't eat of that fruit and fall over dead. He lived to be pretty long according to the scripture. He lived many, many years after that. The day he ate of it, he was dead in a judicial legal declaration. He was dead in the sense that God says, you're guilty, you're condemned by the law, you're in need of a justification. That is the legal declaration of death that was declared to Adam. Secondarily, we know that that fruit of that death was that spiritual corruption that involved him not understanding and him not producing morally what he should produce. Him not understanding, him not coming to God uh, because he lacked faith. He had an inability to understand and know God. Something had to come and teach him to bring him to God if he was to come to God. And that's the way everybody's born in that state. Now, while we're on that topic, you know, you talk ab about free will to people nowadays, and they don't realize that when Adam fell, that day there was a change. If you read in the next couple chapters after that, it says, it talks about some of Adam's kids. It said that they were born in Adam's image. So the, the image of God that Adam was created in, something changed there. there. That image was marred in a sense. And the image of Adam 
then was transferred after that, where they took on Adam's traits, which is the sin nature. So do you think within that change, when that death took place, that legal death, that spiritual death, that eventually would end up in physical death, would eventually, if Adam is not saved, would end up in eternal death. Do you think that death that day affected man's will at all? Well, we know it did by the introductory verses that we read in Romans 3, that man doesn't seek after God and doesn't understand God. Those two middle things, righteous, uh, understand, seek, good. The two things in the middle, seeking God and understanding, involve the will. And there was definitely an effect at the fall of man's will because his understanding was completely destroyed and man by nature has his own understanding that he compares himself with himself and he has a God of his imagination that matches his own standards in a way that he can reconcile himself to God by what he does. So yes, man's will changed. So some people say they think Adam had a free will, you know, and I don't care if you think that or not. I don't believe Adam had a free will. I'm a superlapsarian, absolute predestinarian, which means Adam was predestined and decreed by God to sin. That was God's purpose. It was bound to happen, and Adam could not do a thing about it. So I don't think Adam had a free will. But Adam's will was different than our will. Greatly different. It Before sin, his will was unaffected by sin. After the fall, everything about our will is affected by sin. There is a great difference between our will and Adam's will. So why would people look at Adam, who was without sin, and then ended up sinning, and compare themselves like they think they have something going for themselves when they're born in sin. They think they're going to do better than Adam. That's how messed up man is. That's how deceived man is by his own heart. So the wages of sin is death. If God doesn't stop it, it's a four fold death that will take hold of man and take him to the pit. So the question remains, as it did in the first part, do you have a righteousness that satisfies all the strict, strict demands of God's holy law and unbending justice? Do you have that righteousness? And if you answer, um, yes, you have it by keeping God's law, well, let's talk about a few scriptures that deals with that. You're already familiar with these, but let's rehearse them. And those that are maybe will be listening on sermon audio can have them for reference. Romans 3.20, quoting a lot out of Romans, especially chapter 3. Verse 20 says, Therefore, by the deeds of the law shall no flesh be justified in his sight for or because by the law is the knowledge of sin. Here, here. Under Paul writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit gives the purpose of the law. God gave the law to man to show that man can't keep it. Now, the, the Decalogue, all the other laws after don't eat of this fruit, 
Any other law after that was given was broken automatically, flagrantly, quickly. And those laws are just to show, you know, man, you are a covenant breaker. You can't keep a covenant. Can't do it. You can't keep it with me. You can't keep it with anybody else. You have to keep a covenant with me perfectly, God says. I need a, I need perfect righteousness for you to stand in front of my judgment without being fully consumed. You have to be perfect as my son. So the purpose of the law is to show man that they can't keep it. And you know what? If they were born in, in some miraculous fashion, they were able to keep the law. Doesn't matter. They got Adam's sin imputed to them. They're going to have to take care of that somehow. And they can't do that. And we know it's an impossibility that they're going to keep the law in the first place. So because of other scriptures like this, Romans 3, or I'm sorry, Galatians 3, 10 and 11. For as many are under the works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, cursed is everyone that continues not in all things which are written in the book of the law to do them. But that no man is justified by the law in the sight of God, it is evident. Paul's saying, duh, isn't it evident that nobody can keep the law? Because if you can read, uh, you know, he's talking to different type people, you know, Greeks and Hebrews that was written in Greek and Hebrew and even Old Testament. He's saying, if you can read these languages, now we read English, you can read that you can't keep the law. And we know experimentally that we can't keep the law. Our conscience burns us on that. We're going to talk about the conscience here in a little while too. So just testimony after testimony after testimony. James 2.10 says, For whosoever shall keep the whole law and yet offend in one point, just one small point, just one time, he's guilty of all of breaking the all law. Which matches with what we read in Galatians. You gotta continually keep the whole law all the time, every time, in order to have a perfect righteousness. And of course, when we look at the law under the microscope that Christ explained it in, with the very intents, the thoughts, the motives, we see that man fails big time even more. Like for example, physical adultery is not it only. It's if you look upon a woman with your mind and commit adultery, if you lust after with your heart, you've committed adultery even though you have not even touched the woman. If you hate a person in your mind without laying hands on their throat or shooting them or whatever, however, whatever means you're going to kill them, if you hate them in your mind, you've committed murder. If you have looked on something that you want that's not yours, you're stealing it. It's not yours. You know, these are sins of the heart, of the mind. And those are the sins that the Pharisees said, ah, you know, we're not, we're not guilty of those, you know, because they thought nobody saw them do them. But those are the sins most often committed. As a matter of fact, any sin that's even eventually physically committed is first Mentally committed before it's physically committed. All sin is from the heart. It's from the mind. So 
So the state of the natural man's heart or mind is totally depraved and deceitful above all things, as the scripture says. And he can't, man cannot even know it, can't know that capacity of deceit because his detector is not just broken, it's dead. It don't work. It never did. It never did. Oh, he can get religious and try to reform it and jack it up and jumpstart it, but it's dead. His detector is busted. He can formulate all kind of schemes and plans, but and they can all be sincere and zealous and moral. He's broke. He's dead. He's done. He needs rescued from an outside source. His will and sincerity is not going to help him. So in this state, man's conscience is its own producer of self-righteousness. So even if he thinks, okay, I, I, I feel like I need to be religious because I feel something's just not right. might not understand that he hates God, but he knows something's not as good as it could be. He feels some kind of wrath involved by nature because of his conscience is tender. His conscience has been violated whenever he sins because everybody has a conscience that's been imparted to him since the fall of Adam. That's what that eating of the tree of the fruit of the knowledge of evil was all about, was the impartation of the conscience. Now everything after that, uh, Paul says in Romans 2, you don't even have to have the law on tablets of stone because you have the law written on your heart, your conscience. When it's violated, there's this feeling of, I've got to do something to relieve my guilty conscience. So what happens automatically, naturally. The natural response is, I've got to do something good to make up for the bad. That's man's natural conscience. He, and he doesn't even realize that that's a bad thing. He thinks it's a good thing. See the, see the deceit in the heart? Now, naturally speaking, among men and women, when somebody does something bad against you, they say they're sorry or they replace something or they pay you. I mean, we like that. And I hope that continues to happen in society because it kind of just how we get along. We're talking about God here and we're talking about salvation. We're not talking about getting along in society. So this is the way we think by nature. This is also the way we raise our kids too in a merit system. You do this, you get that. If you do this, I don't tell you to do, you're going to get in trouble. But God is so holy, he doesn't say do this and you can get this because he knows we can't do it to get it. He points to another source. Christ is the only way. You violate that way, you're going to get something all right. You're going to get destruction. So those two things, us and God, they don't run parallel the way we, the way we think and the way God thinks about how we run things. Even though God tells us to do some of the things that we're to do to raise our kids that way. This is something totally, this is salvation. It's not raising kids. It's salvation. It's not getting along in the workplace. Remember, there are differences between, a lot, between God and man. God is allowed being jealous. He deserves being jealous. We don't. We're sinners. We don't deserve any of it. God deserves to be worshipped. He has a command to worship me. We shouldn't be worshipped. If we should, then we'd have the right to be jealous. We don't. Do so you see the difference? There's a lot of differences, so we don't have to go into that thing. It's pretty basic. 
But the self-preservation of man with their guilty conscience digs themselves even a deeper hole for themselves when they attempt to justify themselves by some deed, whether it be great or small, and they are convinced somehow, some way, that God will accept some part of it. And this is the deceptive human trap that only and always increases the debt to God. Just makes it worse, in other words. Heaps on more and more condemnation, no matter how sincerely mankind tries. Now, you can talk to an unregenerate person about this, and they are not going to understand it. I mean, they would almost think you're trying to sabotage their salvation. If you tell them, no, no, stop, you don't understand. You're doing the worst thing right now that you can do. They'll think, you're trying to send me to hell? You know what I mean? Because it's, it's the way they're thinking. They're thinking, i got to do this. i got to make up for what I did wrong. They're looking in the wrong place. You're trying to steer them to Christ. And they're saying, it can't work that way. It can't be too easy. It can't be, it can't be that free. Remember how people can't understand how grace is free? Because they think that meritorious system. They're steeped to the core in the very nature of this, the way they think. The road to hell is paved with good intentions. We've heard that phrase before. It is. The road to hell is paved with the best of intentions. So what is this mindset of man of self-righteousness? This is the peak of spiritual blindness. It's the very peak and pinnacle of spiritual blindness. Self-righteousness is. And man does not even know it. So we can conclude that there's a, a preponderance of evidence from Scripture that man is a guilty sinner. He cannot attain or maintain salvation by keeping God's holy law. Can't do it. This also means that since he cannot be saved by attempts at the law keeping, that there is no lesser law, rule, religious deed, or ceremony that will save or justify him either. Now this is kind of something that a lot of people think is in place. They think, well, a lot of dispensationalists think this way. A lot of people that think of God in this way where there's the Old Testament God and there's the New Testament God. The New Testament God is a little softer. And he's put certain things in place that you can do to help yourself out. And um, some churches might say, well, baptism, which is a lesser, they would say it would be a lesser law. I'm using that phrase. It's a command to be baptized. So that would be a lesser law than any of the Ten Commandments. So they say, well, we can't keep the Ten. So if we're baptized, we'll, we'll be okay. We'll slip in. Or they might add Lord's Supper or both. And you go to different denominations. You might have here's seven that you got to keep. Here's five. Here's three. Here's one. It doesn't matter. They're all conditions. It doesn't matter how many or what they are. Lord's Supper, baptism. Those are popular ones. A lot of denominations, those are ordinances given to God's church. And they take those and they pervert what they're for. And they make them conditional in reference to ways to make it to heaven. Uh, some other maybe lesser ones, those. Uh, prayer. Uh, we know the sinner's prayer. People think that there's this formulated prayer. I mean, that that didn't even come along till like 150 years ago. That you come down front, you pray a prayer, and you're in. Conditioned on... You were smart enough to pray that prayer. You're sincere enough to pray that prayer. God accepts that prayer. He accepts the prayer of sinners, right? Come on. No. Church attendance? I blew that one. Like three weeks. I missed three weeks. I blew it. I had perfect attendance. We just talked about that recently, right? 
And what did I say? I said, pretty soon, that was like two months ago, pretty soon I'm going to be stripped of, <laughs> and it happened. <laughs> I was just joking about it. But we had to make sure of it, right? I wasn't counting on my church attendance. Prayer, church attendance, any good works. I mean, the guy in Matthew 7 we pick at all the time where he says, But Lord, Lord, haven't I done many wonderful good works in your name? I've cast out demons, I've prophesied in your name. So all or any varieties of any other ways of getting to heaven. Here's a more generic, universal idea. That if you're generally good in giving to people, you know, and then when people have that idea, they think, okay, uh, Mother Teresa. Yeah, she's up. She's one of those. She's up there. Because she's generous. She just gave all away of hers and she gave to the poor. She took up her cross. Mother Teresa, she's up there. Uh, I mean, Billy Graham said that about Mother Teresa, by the way. The idea of forgiving people. People take that phrase out of the, what's been called the Lord's Prayer about forgiving others so we can be forgiven, they turn it into a condition. You know, just you can do bad here and there. You know, you see, do I slip up all the time, break the law? So you got to keep this lesser law. I'm going to forgive other people so I can be forgiven. You slip, there's another condition. I mean, I think I told you in time past, I, I one of the guys that trained me how to do pipe fitting, when his mom died, who was a Methodist, he brought in the Methodist pastor, he knew a Roman Catholic priest, and he brought in a rabbi. And I said, what do you, what, what's the deal with those other two that aren't related to what your mom was involved with? Well, I want to have all my bases covered. You know, there's probably more bases than that. But it didn't matter if he picked out every single denomination in the world. You can't cover your bases with sinful men that are not Christ. <laughs> Ridiculous. This is the deceit of man's heart. Right here. There is none that understand this stuff <laughs> that I'm talking about. They don't understand. So when all else fails, when all those, the Ten Commandments and the Lord's Supper, and you keep going down, you get down. We've talked about it before, how that most people say, well, God's a merciful God. The New Testament God, especially. And he'll accept the sacrifice of sincerity. Surely, just do the best you can. I, I told you the story about the one guy who hated the gospel. Every time he saw me reading or talking to anybody about the gospel, he'd just come and he'd try to sabotage it. And that was his answer. He said, he got mad. He said, all, all God requires you to do the best you can. I said, do you do the best you can? Do you do the best you can all the time? Well, he got even madder. <laughs> he didn't. He didn't. So what sacrifice are you going to do because you violated that only rule? You just run out of stuff. You can't, you can't reconcile yourself to God. There's nothing you can do. Law or lesser law. So all of this being ignorant of the gospel of grace, which already says that salvation is conditioned on Christ alone. See, they're thinking all these things because they're ignorant of the only gospel that says salvation is not conditioned on any of these other things. Salvation is conditioned on Christ alone. Let's refresh our memories by turning to uh, Romans chapter 10. I want us to look at some verses there, which we should be very familiar with. Paul here is talking, Paul being a Jew, talking about his 
people that are both related to him and friends and people that he hung out with in the synagogue and stuff with that practice Judaism. He's talking about those people here in verse 1. He says, brothers, he's writing the church at Rome, people that believe like we do. He says, brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel is for Israel to be saved. These are the ones that were practicing the religion that Paul used to practice. Judaism, law keeping for salvation, justifying yourself by the keeping of the law. He says, my prayer and heart's desire for them is that they be saved, which means what? They're not saved. They're lost. So he's praying for their salvation. Verse 2, he says, I bear them record that they have a zeal of God, but not according to knowledge. Now they're excited about who they consider God to be, but they don't know. Because remember what? In John 17, 3, eternal life is knowing God. They don't know him. And Romans 3, they don't understand. Right? So it goes on. It builds. It's important that you see how this builds. He's talking about lost people that practiced religion, the kind of law-keeping religion. He says, I'm here to witness that they have a zeal of God. How's Paul now? He used to be one. He talked about he had the greatest zeal of all of them. He blew them away in all the works. Still said he was lost. He counted his righteousness as dung. He said, but they don't know God according to knowledge, and you've got to know God according to knowledge to have eternal life, John 17, 3 and other verses. For they, these lost people practicing salvation by the law, for they being ignorant of God's righteousness, stop right there. Romans 1, 16 says, for I'm not ashamed, for I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it's the power of God and the salvation of everyone that believes. For therein, that gospel, is the righteousness of God revealed. The introduction of that book that we're in right now, in, we're in chapter 10, reading here, but in chapter 1, says, in the gospel, that's the power of God and salvation, is the righteousness of God revealed. We know that that righteousness is the righteousness of Christ. It's the only standard you must be accepted by, must be put on your account to be accepted by God. And of course, we'll talk about that when we talk about part three. But they're ignorant of God's righteousness. They don't even understand the attribute of God's righteousness. If they did, they wouldn't think that they could be saved by keeping the law because of God's absolute holiness, righteousness, perfection, justice, and so on. But anyway, in verse 3 it says, For they being ignorant of God's righteousness, what's the result of their being ignorant? They're going about, this would mean there's this religious uh, flurry of activity, sincerity, their will is being put into practice to zealously, fervently work sincerely to establish their own righteousness. This is, this is what we talked about, how that they don't even know they're doing this. They don't even know that this is bad. They're digging their own hole deeper. They're heaping more and more and more condemnation on themselves because they're ignorant of the only standard of righteousness, Jesus Christ, so they're trying to establish their own righteousness, which never meets up to the standard of Christ's righteousness. And what's it do? The whole time it's competing with the only standard. And God says, I hate it. And I'll kill you because of it eternally if you don't submit to the righteousness of Christ. That's what it says in the next line. Having not submitted themselves to the righteousness of God. 
If they're trying to establish a righteousness of their own, they haven't submitted themselves to the righteousness of God. In other words, you know what? They haven't believed the gospel. Because the gospel says, verse 4, For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness for everyone who believes. You know what this means here? Christ is the end of the law for justification. Christ, the one who kept the law for justification, is the end of the law for your justification. But no, since you're ignorant of God, you don't understand that point, so you're going about to waste your time to heap more condemnation on yourself, producing your own self-righteousness, which is filthy rags, dung, and vanity. And all you're doing is not being subject to the law of God because you can't be because you're dead. And you're just hurting yourself, eternally hurting yourself by being in this deceived but yet sincere state of mind. And again, when we tell them this, they think we're the devil. That's where, that's where persecution comes in. It doesn't match their nature. So man's last attempt at salvation while being ignorant of the gospel is making, here's the last level I want to talk about tonight. So even if they've blown off all that stuff that we said was the wrong thing to do, not blown it off, but agreed with us, they say, okay, I understand. We can't keep the Ten Commandments. We can't do lesser laws like Lord's Supper doesn't get us there. Baptism doesn't get us there. Prayer doesn't get us there. Church attendance doesn't get us there. Being giving doesn't get us there. And uh, forgiving people their sin doesn't get us there. And all these other things. Sincerity doesn't get us there. And then they say, well, we're saved by faith alone. Now, a lot of people say that. They don't believe the gospel. How can that be? I just want to explain how can that be. Now, if a person is ignorant of the gospel, they can make faith and repentance a condition. And they can make that compete with Christ's righteousness. I've done it. I did it for a long time. I know. And this probably is the most deceitful of all because it gets so much closer to the truth, but yet doesn't nail it. Because it wipes out all the other conditions. It says there's only, they'll say one or two, faith and repentance. Now, in my opinion, I think the Lordship people do this with repentance. Now, that's just what I'm seeing more and more and more of. But if they make faith and repentance a condition instead of Christ being the satisfaction of law and justice, you can see how that can be done and they still not know they're doing it. I was, I did it and I was ignorant. What, what was I thinking? And looking back on it, I was, what I was doing was I was investing my faith in my faith. And this is very, very easily seen with those that believe in universal atonement. They say, okay, well, Christ died for everybody. It's just not in the universal atonement system. A lot of Calvin, I was a Calvinist. I thought the same way too, but it's automatic in the universal atonement system. Christ died for everybody. All you got to do is believe and repent to have that applied to you. Because evidently his death is not good enough because there's many for whom he died will go to hell. So to make that work, you got to be the catalyst to make that work. Because Christ couldn't make it work on his own. It's not effectual. His death's not effectual. You make it effectual by believing. Now, 
you might think that's hard to understand or real hair splitting. It's not. It's still you're trying to steal and take away God's glory by something you do. And if you have it in your mind that you're doing it, then it's a condition. I've talked with people recently who even claim to be five-pointers and say, yes, there's conditions. And I'll name these conditions, that what they claim are conditions. Let me show you how they're not conditions. What does God look to? And this is where our faith should look to. God looks to Christ's propitiation on the cross. His propitiation means satisfaction of law and justice. God's eyes are going right there. Where should faith go? Right there. Now in universal atonement, that's non-existent. It's not even there. That whole thing is just non-existent. Because satisfaction in uh, law and justice was not even rendered to God. Because your faith is what makes the difference in universal atonement. <laughs> so saying that God looks to Christ as a propitiation or the satisfaction of law and justice that puts away sin and takes away sin, remits sin, that's where faith should go. Now, if instead faith goes to its own self and says, I'm looking to myself, congratulations, self, I was smart enough to believe. Faith's a gift. Yeah, sure. I mean, I was smart enough to take that gift, right? That's how some people think faith is a gift. It's offered and I took it. It's not how faith is a gift. Faith is a gift in that it is worked in the heart by the power of the Holy Spirit in the context of the preaching of the gospel. Yes? When you say experience is what people are looking to validate their faith, they've got some, they've had some experience. This is, this is the validation of, of their faith. They, they, in other words, yeah. they want to experience it, they show everybody this is it. Yeah, it's still related to the feeling you were talking about earlier, right? Yeah. Yeah. But they want people to see they had this experience, therefore they are saved. Right. Yeah. I remember I had a few false professions, and at each one I would say, well, it's different now because this certain thing happened. It didn't matter. It was just another layer of conditions. It was different. I mean, uh, you know, there's a difference between, um, you know, a blue chair and a, a white chair. They're both chairs, you know. One of the things, the fact that that the righteousness of Christ is outside yourself, which means it really doesn't show itself in the experience of the believer, except the person believes it. Mm -hmm. Right? Or, yeah, it makes it even harder for people to deal with because they're not leaning on their experience like they would like to. We have to take God at his word concerning what God accepts that's outside of ourselves that we can't see. Right. Right. So they're looking for a validation. So listen to these few little things in closing about what faith is not. And I want to show you why faith is not a condition. And repentance. Faith and repentance did not die on the cross. Right? right. So why should we count it as something that takes away sin? The scripture doesn't say it takes away sin in the first place. People have formulated that, have collected that idea and put that in people, religious people's minds. Faith didn't die on the cross. Christ did. So the work of Christ took care of sin, put away sin. That's where our faith should go, not back investing in our own faith. shouldn't like be looking in a mirror. should be looking to Christ. Um, so faith didn't die on the cross. Faith didn't take away sin. It didn't forgive sin. didn't remit sin. 
So the object of faith is important. God-given faith looks to the only acceptable object, Christ alone. And God-given repentance rejects every other object. Repentance is a change of mind. God changes our mind about what our objects of faith were and are and should be. Paul did that. Remember? Very, very simple. Uh, Philippians 3. He said, I used to count on these things. And he listed them. He said, I moved them from the gain category to the loss category. That's repentance. That's a change of mind. And that's what God does when he saves a person. He changes their mind about what the object of faith is. We quit looking inside subjectively, and we look outside ourselves to only one spot, Christ alone, what he did to cover, put away, take away sin, and satisfy God's law and justice. So the only way that can happen is, of course, by the Spirit of God in the context of the preaching of the gospel. And we know on this side of it, having seen what we see now, man in his ridiculous self-righteous efforts tries to what he's trying to do, he tries to lower God's standard of holiness by saying that God will accept something less than absolute perfection. So we know that man cannot ever, ever meet God's requirements by what he does, by what he thinks or what he says. So do we see the hopelessness of, of natural, dead, guilty, condemned, unrighteous, and unholy mankind in that state? So that's the we, we bring that question back to people after we tell them all this stuff. That even though we see how that God requires these things, man does not have them. But don't forget this, sinner, that you're talking to when you're preaching the gospel. God still requires a perfect righteousness. And people say, oh, there's no hope. Yeah, with man it's impossible, but with God, I'm pointing you to Christ. That's the answer. That's the remedy. So he's the only one with absolute perfection. He's the very glory of God, and that's, that's what we're going to talk about next week in the conclusion of the series.